You are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. The other day, Grace and I took Ada to Burke Lake Park. You know, so unlike us. Now, We've been there before, and if you recall, we went, we went for uh, an EM outing, right, where we grilled some, um, some burgers and some dogs and stuff like that. I, th- I think we're kind of due for another one. It was, it was just a great time, I think. And um, though we've been there, it was our first time on the trail, all right? Now, we had no intention of doing anything strenuous that day. We just wanted to go and see this alleged lake, and... We walked around a little bit. Ada played with some puppies there and all that stuff. We, we threw some stones. We skipped some stones. We played in the playground. It was a lot of fun. It was just a beautiful day, and it was just good. But then one thing led to another, and then we just kind of like played around the trail because there's a trail. And we began walking the trail just a little bit. But one thing neither of us knew, Grace and I, we did not know, was just how long that trail was. And we didn't have a stroller. So with no care in the world, because it was a beautiful Saturday afternoon, we began walking the lovely trail, and we got caught up in the, uh, the beautiful sunset and the people, and we were taking pictures, talking with small Korean ladies who were out for evening strolls. There were so many there. And after a short distance, we thought, well, surely we'll come close to uh, the end, the point where, we're, where we started. I mean, the lake really didn't look that big, okay? But no. Soon an hour passed, and we're still walking. And I could see the sun setting, and um, Ada was looking a little tired. And so I hoisted her up onto my neck, around my neck, and we walked more. And, and every time we cleared a, a bend, thinking that this will be it, nope, there was more trail, and more, and more, and more. And I have never felt such a roller coaster of emotions in such a short period of time. My legs were exhausted. Grace, although military trained, was tired too, to the point where she actually told Ada to get off my back so she could get a piggyback from me. <laughs> so Grace and Ada and I, we continued on, and it was really an unexpected journey. Soon, the sun was pretty much gone, just leaving a light pink hue across the darkening sky. And Grace, she said, I got used to a restroom. And my legs were freezing cold because I made the stupid mistake of wearing shorts. Who does that? My legs were numb and everything, and, and Ada was at least having a ball. She was just singing. She was, on my, she was wrapped around here, and she was just singing ABC and Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star and saying hi to every dog that passed by and every person that walked by, and she was just having a great time. And as we kept on walking, I saw a parking lot, and my heart began racing. Color came back to my face as we were so happy. I said, Grace, this is it. We're home. We're done. But then it was the wrong parking lot. Despair, <laughs> hopelessness, fatigue, hunger. But then we checked on my phone, Google Map. And yes, there was this little trail map that appeared, and, and it looked like we weren't too far off. Then happiness and hope sprung up out of nowhere. Then I got my daughter, I hoisted her back up, and we trekked on, finally getting to our lots. And once we got into our car, we, Grace and I, we looked at each other smiling. 
And then we thank God for saving us from, a, from what seemed like a trip through Mordor. But then we began talking about how all of a sudden great of a trail it was and how we were eager to do this more often. It was weird. We thought we'd walk around just a little that day, get some fresh air. I guess little meant 4.7 miles. So if I faint, (laughs) that's why. So yesterday really illustrates our text for today. You see, James is reminding us today of the joys of life, but also the despair of life. But then God says, I got something for you to do during those moments. I got something for you to think about during those moments. Now, allow me to read from verses 13 14 again. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, if you've ever been to a live sports event, baseball, basketball, football, one thing you'll notice is that if you get distracted for one moment, you could end up missing a great shot or a great score or whatever, an amazing play. That's, that's similar to what's going on here, because this is my warning to you all. Because right now, as you're studying the book of James, and as we're going through this right now, you're all plugged into the text, and you're excited because you see the light at the end of the tunnel here. You're saying, Pastor Dave, we're almost done with James. This is awesome, and I can't wait for what James has in store for us, this passage here, and all that stuff. But then all of a sudden, you look at verse 14, and there's a subject of anointing with oil and healing, and you go, what does that mean? What does that mean? But James is telling us, he's saying, that's not the point. So I'm telling you right now, that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage has nothing to do with the oil, has nothing to do with anointing of that. Rather, the point is prayer. Turn to your neighbor and say this, the point is prayer. So brothers and sisters, I will talk about that later, but know that that's not the point, so don't get distracted. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't get distracted. Now, how many times do we as Christians, we as people who believe in the power of prayer, amen? Amen. Right? Who believe that God is in control, amen? Amen. That's right. And yet for some reason, we as as people who believe in the sovereignty of God, the control of God, that we believe in the power of prayer, we have for some reason this weird mentality that we should only pray when it's the ideal condition. For instance, when times are great, it's hard to pray during those moments. We might say, thank God, like I did and Grace did when we finished that trail, right? We might say that, but then we don't really pray to the Lord, do we? Instead, what do we do? We say, it's time to celebrate. If things are bad, and let's be honest, sometimes prayer is the last thing we want to do then. I don't know how many times I've had meetings with people and they're going through a hard time. They, the first thing, before I even say anything, they say, I know, Pastor, what are you going to say? You're going to tell me to pray. I know, I know, I know. But honestly, how many of you actually do that? When you're having a hard time, the first thing you try to do is fix it yourself. The first thing you try to do is maybe consult with someone and get their input, get their advice before you actually go to God. And the Lord says, no. You come to me first. Instead of trying to figure out yourselves, instead of trying to consult with someone, instead of doing any of that stuff, the Lord reminds you here. Pray first to him. Amen? Turn to your neighbor and say that. Pray first to God. But God here makes it a point to tell us that in the extremes of life, 
even right now in your life, in the good or in the bad, it is always a perfect time for prayer. Always a perfect time. Even right now. You know I love my, my wife and, and what she does? Even when I'm speaking, she's praying for me. You know what I love about doing missions too? Is that when one person, as we partner out and we go into the city, the inner cities, when we go to the refugee camp, wherever we go, college campus, and we have one person who's initiating conversation with the unbeliever, we have the other partner who's praying for them at that moment. That's what you're doing. Prayer is perfect for all time. So God tells us that we need to pray when we're in trouble here. In particular, verse 13 tells us that hardships and suffering is an occasion for prayer because prayer is the characteristic of God's people. It's a characteristic of God's people that we persevere in prayer. Right now, whatever it is that you're going through, no matter how big or how small, the Lord says, cry out to him. He says, cry out to me. When you don't understand your trouble, pray because God does. When you're losing control of your life, pray because God is in control. When you're out of answers, pray because God knows. When you're stuck and there's nothing left for you, pray because God, the Lord, will lead you. Praying is special because through prayer, we see beyond the present world with its apparent meaninglessness. And so when we pray, we begin to think like God thinks, and we begin to value what God values. I remember I had such a difficult relationship with a teammate of mine in Cambodia missions. He was so difficult that none of our missions team members actually wanted to be near him for any time. They avoided him like the plague. It is too bad. So because I was typically the one, maybe I was the only other guy on the team. Maybe that was the reason why. But I got a lot of verbal attacks from him. And he undermined my authority a lot. And so naturally, I really took up prayer. And I said, Lord, you got to help me here. And so I actually did kind of like this imprecatory prayer. I said, God, would you smite him? He is a pebble in all our shoes, and so relieve us of him, O Lord, per your humble servant's request. Take him away from us. Take him back to America. Okay, I didn't really pray those exact words, but almost the gist of it, I did. Because almost after two months of praying, I said, God, change him. Fix him. Change the scenario, the situation, the circumstance. Get him out of my room. Why am I bunking next to him? Remove him from me, Lord. But what happened? During my prayer, as I was seeking God for the circumstances to change, God, he began to change my heart. My heart. And the Lord soon allowed me to see him as he did. And when that happened, the Lord began to work in my teammates' heart too. And there was reconciliation soon afterwards. You see, prayer is more than altering circumstances to serve you better. Prayer, prayer is altering your heart so that you can serve God better. You, you know what I'm saying? That's what it is. He wants to change your heart. He's not going to promise to change your scenario, your situation, your circumstance, your debt, your brokenness, your relationship. He's going to change you, though, if you're willing, if you're humble, if you're receptive to that. Maybe because... The desire to reconcile with that person isn't just for your peace of mind, but for God's glory and grace to be seen even at the expense of your pride. Because every time we pray, we want him to change, don't we? 
We want her to fix that thing about herself. And the whole time, all God sees is this. He sees a child with chocolate smeared all over his face, and the child saying, hey, look at that kid stealing and eating chocolate. God's like, you got issues too. Let's start with you. Turn to your neighbor and say that. The Lord says, let's start with you. And so the first lesson here was to cry out to God no matter what, especially in times of trouble. But like my Burke Lake Park adventure, there are also good parts too, especially when I thought we were coming near. And so our second lesson for today is that we need to fill our days with praise. Hallelujah. Fill our days with praise. Turn, look up and say, praise you, Father. Praise you, Father. The second half of verse 13 says, is any, if anyone's cheerful, let him sing what? Praise. Let him sing praise. How do you celebrate? Well, that's a different question now, isn't it? How do you celebrate? During the NFL season, we know how people celebrate the end zone, right? They do some crazy stuff. After a national championship, we know how some people celebrate. We know how people celebrate when things are going super well, when you get that promotion, when it's the holidays or you go on vacation. How do you celebrate? Now, the familiar word for all of us is really the word party, isn't it? We like to celebrate by partying. But what kind of party? People love St. Patrick's Day. Why? Because they love the Irish? Because they really want the Irish people to know the Lord? No, so they can, they, they can get drunk and party. People love Christmas Day, and so they can party on Christmas Eve because they know the next day they don't have work and they can get plastered. People love Valentine's Day so they can stay home alone and party with Netflix and get drunk. People love birthdays because they love to get the birthday person drunk and party with every single person. You're all grinning because you're all like, yeah, yeah. You see, there seems to be a pattern here. God is all about partying too. Now, y'all can take it out of context right now. Pastor David says God wants us to party and get drunk. And that's not what I'm saying. God wants his people to party and celebrate for whatever reason, but according to the context of this verse, God wants his people to party in his presence. In his presence. Now, a lot of you are thinking, that doesn't sound like fun. Do you know why we have Thanksgiving Day morning service? Do you know why we have Christmas Eve program? Do you know why we have the Christmas Day service, the New Year service, and, and on and on it goes? Do you, do you know why we have these, these moments and these events and these programs? Is it because we're purposely trying to keep you guys out of trouble? Maybe. But honestly, it's because we want to celebrate with you. We want all of us to come here together on that morning or that day and sing songs of praise and words of worship to God. We want to celebrate in his presence. Don't you? If you don't want to celebrate in the presence of God with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, what makes you think you want to celebrate in the presence, actual presence of God for all eternity? It's interesting. In the other religions, there is no hymn or congregational singing in Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam. But for some reason, for the people who trust in Jesus, God tells his church, his people, to fill our days with praise. This is a good thing. Just a couple days ago, we went to McLean Bible Church to see Shane and Shane and the other people. And we saw a few thousand people just worshiping. It was awesome singing songs of Christ together. It's wonderful. 
And so what is this verse telling you guys practically? This verse is telling us, James is telling us this, don't, do not be a spectator when it comes to worship. Don't be a spectator. Don't rely on the praise team to act. That's why for me as a former praise leader, I know when there are people who are musicians and those who are worship leaders. So when I go to Christian concerts, I'm tired of Christian concerts, to be honest, because majority of them are fantastic, they're great and stuff like that, and they're great in terms of performance, but I'm like, where's the worship here? But I love it when Shane and Shane comes. That was my fourth time, by the way, seeing them. And they're getting so much older, a little bit slower, <laughs> not as high, <laughs> right? But it was wonderful. Don't rely on the team, on the praise team to act as performers, but in all days for every occasion, whether in hard times or in good times, God, he says, sing praises to him. Sing praises. Don't let your emotions dictate your worship. Right now, some of you guys are thinking, well, I had a really crummy morning. My car got a flat tire. I got an argument with my spouse. Yesterday, I found out that I didn't get that raise or whatever the issue is. And now you come here and you're thinking, how can I possibly worship God in that emotional state and the Lord says, don't let it influence you. Don't let how you feel about God, thinking that somehow what you thought you were owed by God was now suddenly taken away. Don't let how you feel about God influence what you know is true about God. Because you know God is God, amen? And you know regardless of whatever you feel or experience or whatever the state of our economy or our world or society is, that God is still God, therefore demands and deserves Almighty worship. As a husband, when I'm having a crummy day, do I come to my wife and not love her? I go, you don't deserve it because I'm having a bad day. My daughter says, Daddy. I go, please. <laughs> Ada, do you know how my day went? It was so bad. You do not deserve my love today. But when I'm happy, you know, we call it bipolarism. When things are going great, we are great with other people. When things are going bad, we're crummy to other people. No, 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 no. We cannot be like that with God. We cannot be like that with God. Do not let your emotions dictate your worship. Do not let your worship of God lead you to him. Open your hearts to him. I love one of my beloved pastor, Jay Park, from up GCC, uh, up in New York, tri-state area. He says, check your worship when you feel bad. Check your worship. Sometimes when you just worship God without allowing yourself to be uh, confused and impacted by your, your situation. He says, just worship God. Just worship God. So, in this sense, praise the Lord all the days of your life. Fill your days with praise. So to the ones who can sing like Whitney Houston, to the ones who cannot, it doesn't matter. Sing with all your heart. Sing with passion. Sing because the Spirit of Christ is in you. Sing because you are redeemed. Sing because you are reconciled to Him. Sing because you're restored back to the Father. And sing because all honor, praise, and glory, and worship is God's. And so I encourage you all to sing praises all the time. Sing praises in your car. How many of you guys do that? You're all liars if you don't raise your hands. I know you do that because you all think you sound wonderful in there, Right? How many of you guys sing in the shower? Oh, come on. This has the most phenomenal acoustics that no church or any type of stadium could ever afford. We sing in our homes in every circumstance. When you sing out and shout out the truth of who God is, it really begins to reshape our perception of life. It really begins to change our emotion too. 
So here in verse 14, we've just crossed the bend thinking that we're at the home stretch, only to realize that there's still ways to go. So here in the next two verses, we have a word of encouragement for a very particular time, a time when we're feeling weak, as James says. When you're feeling weary and tired and when you're struggling, James encourages us to depend on God. Now, you're all thinking, well, obviously, Pastor Day, that makes sense. When I'm weary, when I'm sick, when I'm struggling, to depend on, to depend on God, that makes sense. It's a no-brainer there. Of course I know that. Sounds like a typical statement, right? It's actually quite radical. Let's say that you say to your friend, man, I'm really feeling bad today, or I feel lifeless. I feel weak. I feel like I have no motivation, no inspiration. I bet most people who come across you probably would never say, hmm, you need the Lord. Most people probably wouldn't say that. Or if you say, I feel down because of my marriage situation or my kids' situation or my finances or my job, I bet many people would simply give you lots of advice about marriage, a lot of advice about work, a lot of advice about parenting, but not many people would say, have you gone to the Lord? Am I right? But the Bible tells us this morning, this afternoon, that when you're down and when you're weak, when you're weary and when you're sick, what you need most, who you need most is God. We think the medical or technological or political field or industry has an answer and cure to all things, so we place our hope and faith and all our expectations towards the geniuses of those fields, thinking, you must be right. But today, God says, don't do that. He says, first come to me, because if you first go to them or any person for that matter, we're flirting with idolatry, thinking that person or that thing or this group is my salvation. You want mentorship? Come, go to the Holy Spirit first. You want answers? Go to God first, then through others. You want healing? Go to God first, then from others. Now, God has allowed his work to be done through human agents. So our text doesn't just tell us who we desperately need, but it tells us how we can do this, how to pursue God. So you see, the next few verses will go against every person who has ever said, I don't need church. Or I don't need church to know God. Now, while it's true that one can be saved outside of church, what is the direct role of the church and why is it important? Firstly, and these are not part of my sermon points, okay, but it's like a brief tangent on why it's important, and that is this. Christ is God revealed in flesh, right? Remember, Christ Jesus is the image of God, is the image of the invisible God. God used his son, the incarnation. God becomes man. Man does not become God, okay? God becomes man to reveal himself to us. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14, 16, which at first Christ reveals God, we learn from Apostle Paul that the church reveals Christ, okay? Christ reveals the Father. The role of you and I, the church here, is to reveal Christ. Reveal Christ to the world. God not only continues to be the incarnate in Christ only, but also in the church. You and I, but whether you know it or not, we are the visible expression to the world of the Savior who is presently in heaven. And of course, when I refer to the church, I don't mean just the building with four walls, but the body of Christ here. And so, yes, we do need one another. Where do we gather? It's right here. 
And so the scripture tells us that when we're weak, tired, weary, or sick, we need God's church for two reasons, okay? One, we need the church for prayer. Turn to your neighbor and say that. We need the church for prayer. When you're struggling, it says call the elders. Now our EM is still young, and we're still in the process of building up our ministry, and soon we will have deacons and elders. How crazy is that? That would be wonderful. We're going to have some deacons and elders within this ministry. And so while this point may seem irrelevant, I assure you it's not. And I'll tell you why. Because even though we may not have actual elders within our ministry here, which, by the way, as a pastor, I'm still under the office of elders. Even though we may not have elders here for our men. Can I hear the men? Say amen. amen. Consider this amazing qualification that when someone is struggling... They will want to turn to you for what? Donation? No. A hot meal? No. Employment through the connections that you have? No. These people will turn to you, men, as someone who understands God, as someone who knows his word, who's growing in wisdom, as people who know how to pray and understand what it means to live in God's presence. They will turn to the elder for prayer because you know how to get to God. Also, another interesting note is that this verse points out that the people called the elders. They called the elders. I definitely think we as elders, or especially as a pastor, that we have a responsibility to know what's going on in the lives of our members. But it also states here that we're clearly not omniscient, which means that if you want me or any future elder to pray for you guys, sometimes you're just going to have to come to us and call us and explain the situation and not simply assume that we know everything that's going on. And so to the mighty men of Shining Star, I exhort you all to grow in faith, amen? To grow in maturity, to grow in your love and passion for Christ and the church that he died for, and hopefully soon we will, as a congregation, will have the honor to nominate and elect our first elders of our English ministry, amen? The last point is that when we're weak, tired, and in need. We need the church's care. Now, this anointing of oil, like I said before in verse 14 here, it's a bit controversial. And I know perhaps some of you guys are, just pace with me here, okay? It's not something as clear as the Lord's Supper. We know what we have to do. We have the Lord's Supper soon after this. We know it's not as clear <clears throat> as baptism, were these two ordinances that Christ had instituted. Some thought that the use of oil was simply medicinal, like in the parable of the Good Samaritan, how he used oil to help that man's wounds. In fact, I recall there's a Korean-American church in Philadelphia, and they have 16 elders on their board, and all 16 elders are medical doctors. So maybe that's what they believed. The oil meant something medicinal. But if that was the case, then they would have used a different Greek word and all that stuff to describe, but they didn't use that. So what could this mean? Now here's the thing. I tend to side with most of the commentaries that this usage of anointing actually refers to care. Practical care. There's a couple words for anoint. One is the ordinary word that we know, anoint, to rub or to smear or to put on. But then there's also another word for anoint, which means it's an incredibly sacred word. It's the one that the high priest would do upon, during ceremony upon the sacrifice or the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon the people of the New Testament. Well, the word here that's used is the word for the ordinary smearing on. So James says, hey, call the elders to smear the oil on you, to rub this oil on you and pray for you. 
Okay, so what's just smearing olive oil? What does it mean? Why would the elders smear oil on you if you are sick? Luke 7, Jesus goes to, home of, goes to the home of a Pharisee. And as he sits down, this sinful woman, sinful woman runs up to him and she pours this expensive perfume on his feet. And the owner of that home, that Pharisee, was outraged. And he says, how can you let this happen? And Jesus responds, he says, you did not put oil on my head. But she has come and poured perfume on my feet. So what's the significance of oil on the head? It's a tradition. It's a custom of care of making the guests feel comfortable and accepted. It is in the category of washing feet. It was meeting their practical needs. So if any of you guys were come to my home, custom, care, custom of care would simply be me saying, do you want something to drink? Or do you want to sit down on my couch? You need to use the restroom? By all means, straight down to your left. That's all it is. But at the same time, within the context of James here, it still doesn't quite make much sense because it's not talking about hospitality. James is talking about what's the point? Huh? I want to hear you. If it's not about oil and anointing, it's about prayer. We're not talking about hospitality. We're talking about prayer. So what do I think? I think the Bible is saying that the oil isn't the big thing that we should get hung up about, but rather understand that it's a cultural expression of care for people. It's like when we bring flowers to someone's home when they invite us over for dinner. Or maybe someone who's sick. Maybe they're perhaps uh, incapacitated, so we make dinner for them, or that we even wash their bodies for them. And the reason it makes sense here is because prayer is most well-received within the context of care. This past Thanksgiving service, if you recall, I had the opportunity to pray for some of you guys and walk around and lay a hand on you and pray for you. One of the sisters emailed me not too long ago telling me what's going on in her life, but to also thank me for that time, that morning that I prayed for her. And she said, thank you, it meant a lot for me, this is what's going on in my life, and I appreciate that, and so on and so forth. So I love praying for others, but I also love it when members and staff pray for me. It shows that they care for me. So prayer in this sense, anointing of the oil, is practical care in the context of prayer. And quite honestly, that's what this verse is saying. When you're weak, weary, tired, struggling, the Bible tells us to seek care from one another, from members, from future elders, from me, your pastor. Now, I'm not going to go into verse 15. I'm going to leave that to next week and the week after that as we wrap up our series here in James. But this is what I, end, this is what I want to end with, okay? I want to encourage you all that the church is more than a gathering ground, but a lifeline. Do not minimize the role of the church in your life. A church family is one who really seeks the Lord and single-mindedly trusts in Him. A church family is comprised of men and women of faith who love one another and genuinely are concerned for each other. A church family is a real ministry of prayer. Not just programs to fill up the time, but a ministry of the Spirit and the Word. A church family is a family that displays compassionate, loving care, tender care for one another. A church family is a place where there will always be an open seat for the prodigal to return so that they would experience the same joy of God's grace through the grace of God's people. You get that? I've had an elder before say, why do you allow and there's this one individual person who obviously looked high, all tatted up, coming in. And he said, don't allow someone like that to come in. 
Oh, if I was fluent enough in Korean, I would have given him peace of my mind. I go, those are exactly the people who should be coming in. What is our objective as a church then? What is God's word telling us today? The word tells us that the church's goal is to reveal the Son of God to the world. In other words, to know God and make him known. We are the household of God. You know that? And we are the ones, we are the pillar of God's truth here in this world, in this society. And we are the current expression of Jesus' love and justice until the day that he comes back. Someone once said this, people won't read the Bible, but they will certainly read Christians. We as a church have a responsibility to live and love as Christ lived and loved. But honestly, we cannot do, we cannot be what we do not know. The way our ministry can really grow to be prayerful and praising and God-loving and, and, and joy-filled and compassionate ministry is only when each of us, each of us, grow in our personal faith with Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember, Jesus is our beginning, but he's also our means and he is our end. Amen? Do you want this church? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you guys right now as we've just concluded this sermon, that you would use now this time to prepare for the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper, or the communion, is one of self-examination. You've heard me say that many times before. Therefore, he does not want you to take this meal like you would take a normal meal, just doing it and eating it out of routine or anything like that. He wants you to take this soberly, thoughtfully, prayerfully, and most importantly, faithfully, knowing what it represents. This is the time where you get to judge your own hearts and judge for yourself if there's any sins that have remained unrepented of or that you've kind of swept under the rug. And I think we all have that. There is no need to hide from our master. There is no need to try to hide it from the Holy Spirit who will expose it regardless. Maybe there's something in the word of God that you're disobeying. Well, God says to check yourself and examine yourself if you are. Maybe you're harboring a sin and you feel like God may overlook it. Here's the thing. We all need to remember the blood that was shed to forgive you of all your sins. And to keep you from your sins. And to have your heart right with our new Lord and Savior. So friends, if you have not accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is not your supper to take. If, however, you are a brother or sister in Christ, you by faith have acknowledged the lordship and the saviorship of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins in your place, and after three days rose from the grave to verify and to validate and to display his deity as the Son of God, that he is in fact the one true God. You believe that. And you are living in that. And I ask that you take a moment to pray.
to humbly submit yourself, to repent of any sin. And with a thankful heart and yet with a sorrowful heart, knowing that it was your sin, my sin, that put him on that cross in the first place. That you would then approach our sides here where Pastor Josh and Jesse stand with, uh, with the bread and with the juice. And you can partake. So take just a brief moment and please join me in this time of Lord's Supper.